Almighty God, we ask, as we have been asking throughout Advent, that you would rip open the heavens and come down, that you would meet with your people and that you would give us all that we need for life in this world. And pray, Lord, that you would sustain us so that we would meet Jesus and not be ashamed when he comes at his second coming. And so, Lord, be among us, feed us, we pray, through word and sacrament, and we commend ourselves to your care. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We'll go ahead and turn with me to our lesson from Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. We are moving right along uh, through these lessons uh, that we've been having from the Old Testament, particularly from the prophet of Isaiah. And as I mentioned last week, I love the progression that we have, the way they've been selected. They really do build on each other so well. And that's so much of the case because Isaiah's prophecies are just so interconnected with one another. And the themes that he develops throughout the book are just touching and speaking back and forth uh, among one another. And so we can have, beginning with a place like Isaiah 64, and then go to Isaiah 40, and then back to Isaiah 65, and it to all somewhat sound like it was meant in that arrangement. Um, and so I've loved the way that this uh, progression of Isaiah has moved throughout Lent so far. And as you remember, on our first Sunday in Advent, we encountered a portion of Isaiah's intercessory prayer uh, there in Isaiah chapter 64. And and that's one of the great intercessory prayers of all of Scripture, behind maybe Jesus' high priestly prayer and John's gospel. Uh, and also even, even Moses' intercessory prayer there in the book of Exodus for the people. But in Isaiah 64, I, Isaiah calls upon God to, to rip the heavens open and come down to save. Because he knows that nothing short of God's divine intervention will change the situation on the ground and in hardened hearts of his people. Last week, we heard God's answer to such intercessory prayer. There in chapter 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, speak to Jerusalem's heart, and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. God's disposition we saw last week to his hard-hearted people is one of tender love. He speaks directly to the heart and he declares that we are redeemed, forgiven, and restored. Now the rest of the second half of Isaiah unpacks that. But there in, verse, in chapter 40, he just makes the declaration. All we need to do is prepare the way for his return because there is no redemption. There is no forgiveness. There is no restoration apart from him. Apart from his presence among us. Apart from Emmanuel. And as we prepare for his return through repentance and faith, we discover there is a progression, as Isaiah lays out there in chapter 40, to restored intimacy that moves from what we hear to what we see to what we experience. And what we hear is the cry of preparation, make straight what is crooked. And what we see is the Lord Jesus ultimately returning from victory as our divine warrior king, and he is carrying us in his arms as the spoils of war. And what we experience, though, is Jesus as the good shepherd who tends to our needs, who gathers us up from straying from his path with strong but tender arms, who carries us close to himself, and who leads us even in such a way that even the most vulnerable thrive and flourish. And it's this flourishing of life we hear portrayed 
in our lesson this morning from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. And it's given to us as a sure promise. A sure promise for those who seek the Lord. If you go back to verse 10 of Isaiah 65, this is for his people, his servants, those who seek the Lord. In this lesson, Isaiah paints a picture of the good life that God promises to make a reality across every square inch of this creation renewed. And at that time of renewal, there will be a new creation. It will come, new heavens and new earth. New Jerusalem will be established. The people of God will be characterized by God rejoicing and being glad in us. Be characterized by God rejoicing and being glad in us. Every tear will be wiped away, and death itself will die no more to plague humanity with sorrow. Everything sad will become untrue. That's the great Christian hope. That's the great longing for God's kingdom to be fully manifest on earth as it is in heaven. And who doesn't want that life ultimately when Jesus returns in glory? Who wouldn't want that? Who doesn't want an approximation of that life now? A life of ultimate flourishing fulfillment characterized by a profound and enduring joy and gladness. A, a world where everything that resists life and its flourishing is no more. It's no longer permitted a presence. Who doesn't want that? The answer, of course, is no one. Everyone wants, everyone desires in some way a flourishing and a fulfilled life marked by joy and gladness. We all want that. That characterizes our humanity. And that's the point of Isaiah chapter 65 in these verses that we've read. God's promise of a new heavens and new earth and his promise of the good life within it is to motivate hard-hearted people to seek him, to shake them out of, of, out of where they've been living and how they've been living and to seek him instead of forsake him, to listen to him instead of ignore him. If you don't want to do it because of God, because you love him, do it because of the goodness that he offers you in the age to come. Seek him. Yet the dominant post-Christian culture in which we live instills within us an aversion to God's promise of ultimate fulfillment and joy. It really gives us, in one sense, a spiritual uh, activated charcoal. Do you know activated charcoal? It, it, you swallow it when you've, when you've consumed a poison. You, you swallow the activated charcoal. It kind of covers it up and it'll make you, I think it'll make you throw up. Am I correct or incorrect there? It'll make you throw up. That's what our culture does to the promise of God's new creation, the good life that he promises here. It, it floods, it, it surrounds that promise like activated charcoal. We, are, we have this natural almost, this, or this inculcated, this in, instilled aversion to the hope, to the promise of God's ultimate fulfillment and joy in our lives. Well, why is that? Because to embrace the promise of the good life and God's new creation is ultimately to embrace God himself. Of course, as he's revealed in Jesus, but, but even more than that, as he's revealed throughout all of Scripture, from creation to new creation, to embrace the promise of the good life that God gives us in his kingdom means that we embrace God. After all, we're made for God. Life with him and in him is our proper end. It is the goal of human existence. And there is no ultimate human fulfillment or joy, no new heavens, no new earth apart from him. Apart from him who speaks creation into existence, speaks creation into being, apart from him who rejoices in what he has made. 
We see there in verse 17 that the new heavens and the new earth are completely and utterly reliant upon God. They're completely contingent upon the one who calls them into being. For behold, he says, I create new heavens and new earth. There is no new heavens and new earth apart from that declarative statement of God, his will and intention, I create. Similarly, in verse 18, we discover that we, the people of God, his children, that we in our ultimate fulfillment likewise are utterly dependent upon God and his joyful and glad acknowledgement of us. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Yet here is where the rub is found. To embrace God is to embrace the limits and the constraints he, as our loving creator, places on us as his creatures. To embrace God is to embrace the limits and the constraints that he, as our loving creator, places on us as his creatures. And this runs afoul of the dominant cultural understanding of freedom. I'm not critiquing freedom as a concept in general, but a particular understanding of freedom today that is pervasive in our culture. Freedom is, after all, the chief value of our post-Christian culture. But what does it mean? What does it mean? What's the understanding of it in this particular moment in our secular age? Freedom means removing limitations and constraints. The fewer the boundaries we have on our choices and actions, the freer we feel ourselves to be. Think about advertising that communicates this. Well, I'll just give a, a few examples here. One would be Tinder's hashtag swipe life slogans. And one of those is single does what single wants. Single does what single wants. And this communicates a life unburdened by the constraints of marriage or children. Think of the recent rise that have been like characterized as sinks and dinks. Single income, no kids. Double income, no kids. No, no, there's no desire, even within a relationship, to be encumbered by the constraints that is a part of God's natural creation. Or we could go to Burger King's famous line, which is, have it your way. Or we could turn to pop music and see how this is communicated. We could go to a thousand different songs. But particularly speaking about her song, I Don't Belong to You, Kiki Palmer explained about what the song means. I don't belong to anyone else but myself. I have to make my own decisions. Happiness is defined by me. My sexuality is defined by me, and that can change, and this can change, and I can make it what I want it to be because I'm the one who makes the choice. You see, right at the heart of our post-Christian culture is the ideal of personal and autonomous freedom. It's written in every story that's told, every song that's sung. It's pervasive. And this is it, that we can have and live the good life only if we are absolutely free to choose for ourselves. No constraints, no limits. That we can have the greatest level of happiness and fulfillment only when we have freedom to choose. Only when no one is constraining our choices. Indeed, we are addicted to such freedom. Freedom that rejects what one author calls the burden of order. 
or what St. Paul calls the eternal weight of glory, choosing instead the breezy lightness of freedom. This looks like loving self more than relation. For every relationship imposes certain constraints necessary to bring about fulfillment and life and joy, especially in the way that God has ordered our relationships. Take marriage, for example. Holy matrimony imposes constraints like fidelity or love by means of self-donation to and for another. Without those things, marriage breaks down. There's no fulfillment in it. There's no joy in it. Within this framework of personal and autonomous freedom, God is seen as the ultimate oppressor, constraining us, shackling us with his limitations, with his constraints. So we see all around us those who seek their emancipation from him and the good order of his creation choosing to do what is right in their own eyes. We have an entire book of scripture that displays what that produces in a people, the book of Judges. Yet in Isaiah chapter 65, God reveals that such a choice, that such freedom, personal autonomous freedom, has natural consequences. Just look there. This is before our reading. Sometimes the lectionary, you can't read everything, but sometimes... The lectionary cuts passages off right in the middle. Picking up in verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 65, we hear the Lord speaking. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for the God fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for the God destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes, and the converse of that is you did what was right in your own eyes, and you chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord your God, behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. Do you notice the natural consequences of personal autonomous freedom, of choosing what is right in our own eyes, rejecting God, forsaking God, forgetting God, total non-fulfillment. That's what's meant by being hungry and thirsty. It's total non-fulfillment in this life. Shame is a consequence, particularly here it's the shame of disappointed hopes. Because in the contrast, the the servants of God are those who are rejoicing. Their dreams have come true. Their lives have been fulfilled. The third consequence is pain of heart. And this is an anguish that grips the whole person at the very core of who they are. And then lastly, it's a broken spirit. And this is the breakdown of every vital energy and purposeful activity that we possess. This list of consequences for forsaking God and choosing ourselves, our own personal autonomous freedom, rings true with experience. It rings true with the precipitous rise in depression and hopelessness that pervades our culture. Just reading this week, in the last five years, 
a significant rise in depression, clinical depression, among young folks and especially women. There's something about our age, about this society and culture that's forsaken God that rings true with the assessment of God on what would happen when we do that. Yet, there's hope. There's another choice available to us that leads, in Isaiah's words, to true fulfillment, to true freedom. Indeed, God offers us freedom from freedom. Freedom from freedom. He offers us another choice. We can choose to seek him. We can choose to prepare our hearts to receive Emmanuel, God with us, to receive God in human flesh. And such a choice has its own natural consequences. We already heard them, but this is for those, my people. The end of verse 10 says, for my people who have sought me, these are my servants. Now this is their consequence. My servants shall eat. My servants shall drink. My servants shall rejoice. My servants shall sing for gladness of heart. Total fulfillment. Eating and drinking in the kingdom of God an anticipation of which we gather around the table every week to engage in. Joy and gladness of heart, which arises from God, fulfilling all our deepest hopes, dreams, and desires in his glorious kingdom that he is preparing for us. It doesn't mean that all our hopes and dreams are fulfilled right now and we feel that joy and pleasure, but we're moving there. And it's this kingdom that Isaiah gives us a glimpse of and verses 17 through 25, and we could easily focus on all the reversals that are portrayed, and there are so many beautiful things. No weeping, no mourning. The young will no longer, the children will no longer die in infancy. There will no longer be miscarriages. We could easily focus on those reversals because they hit so close to home. But if we did that this morning, since we have limited time, I would love to sit down for two or three hours and us really unpack this. The one thing we must not miss is the greatest promise that God offers us in this passage and the key to human flourishing and fulfillment. Look at, it's right there in the second half of verse 18 through verse 19. This is the second creative act of God in this passage. The first one was in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens, new earth. Middle of verse 18. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. True and ultimate life and fulfillment is this, that God delights in you. That God delights in you. He has joy in you. He rejoices in and over you. His gladness is found in you. The new heavens and new earth will be full of God's approval of you. He has made you for such enjoyment. I have made Jerusalem to be a joy. I have made your people to be a gladness. C.S. Lewis, in his great essay, The Weight of Glory, helps us grasp this when he says, Quote, I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child. And nothing is so obvious in a child, not in a conceited child, but a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. 
I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment, before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen with the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. He's saying about being a child again and desiring to hear from your daddy or your mama. You make me happy. I delight in you. You are my joy. At the first advent, God sent his only son to take on human flesh so that he might redeem us, pardon us, and restore us to God, making us delightful again to the one who in his love created us for himself so that he might enjoy us so that he might eternally find joy and gladness in our lives. Ultimate human fulfillment and flourishing is found in God's joyful delight in us. All the limits and the constraints he places on us through creation order and the law of Christ are to guide us to such fulfillment and flourishing and glory. So often our pursuits in life are seeking that kind of affirmation, that kind of approval, that kind of delight. But we don't do it from God. We do it inside ourselves and from others and at times it presses us to demand it from others. You must affirm me. You must be delighted in me. Instead of us falling like a child upon our father, our creator, and seeking his approval. Seeking the way that he finds delight in us through his son Jesus. The promise of glory, C.S. Lewis wrote, is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination of his judgment, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a, a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. It is so. Our desire for our parents to be pleased with us is a shadow that points to the one we ultimately desire to delight in us, to take joy in us, to be glad in us. And there is nothing more satisfying in all of human life, now and in the age to come, than that. That this, true, that this is true fulfillment, that this is true human flourishing, that God would be delighted with us. So prepare today 
This is Advent. We are making our preparations. So prepare today and every day for the return of the King, the return of King Jesus in glory. Let go of your autonomous freedom so that you might grab a hold of true freedom. Do not delay. The whole season of Advent is one of, you do not know when Jesus will return, so do not delay today. Seek God and his kingdom. Now, in this age, no matter the cost, because one day, Lord willing, we will hear the giddy and the delighted voice of God, our Father, declaring over us, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into his delight and joy in you. And find true fulfillment and peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.